Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. This is part 2 in a series entitled Chosen in Christ. It is a remake of an old series back about 11 years ago. And today's message is the attributes of God in relation to unconditional election. Last week we did the introduction. It's pretty much just a preview of what we were going to be looking at. And this week we're going to go start picking up some of these subjects today on the attributes of God. And it's just going to be a general survey. We've done a series on the attributes of God. It's on Sermon Audio. I forget how many parts. It seemed like 20. Close to it. So we're, this is not uh, going to be exhaustive, as you well know. No message in and of itself is exhaustive. It, we know how God, how deep he is, and we can't exhaust him in an hour anyway, but it's going to be kind of an overview. We're going to be touching on some attributes, maybe stressing some more than others, and in this message, we're not going to just deal with the attributes and stop. As we go through the series, all this is going to be coming back up again. Ephesians 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, and faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ, according as he chose us in him in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, in which he made us accepted in the beloved. There's some more of that text that's going to go all the way to verse 11. We can later... If I remember, go back and pick some of that up because there's some language in there that deals with some attributes that we will try to um, shine the spotlight on. Let me say this. Last week I, I made a statement, and this is a fact, and this is like a, a concerning election. This is the one big thing about election that just smacks people in the face, and this is a fact that must be accepted because some religious people don't even know that this doctrine exists. Whether unconditional or not, they don't even know that it exists. And I had made the statement that all people who ever will be saved have been chosen by God to be saved. Now, that's a biblical fact. It's, it's easy to see. We're going to be covering it. We're going to go into a lot of detail about it. And again, whether conditional or unconditional, we're going to teach the truth of unconditional election. But most people, they don't like it because it takes control from them and puts it in who has the divine right to control all things and who does control all things, Almighty God. And those people that it doesn't scare to death, the only reason it doesn't scare them to death is because they have altered the truth of the scripture to create a system so that they could be the one that salvation is conditioned on. And now it's okay. 
they're back in charge. They've got a ring in Christ's nose, the Father's nose. They're leading him around, and uh, they're fine with that. So they've created a, a buffet, so to speak, of salvation by conditions and works with a little dash of fake grace in there that's canceled out anyway because it's man-made and conditioned on man. Here's a definition we used this last week of unconditional election. Because the only true God purposed to reveal the glory of his redemptive character in eternal salvation, he chose a definite number of individuals before the world was created, conditioning their election upon Jesus Christ alone. The basis of God's sovereign choice of the elect was not in man's actions, works, or foreseen faith, but solely by the Father, setting them apart by free and sovereign grace accepted in Christ alone. As I mentioned, this is a, I had tweaked our own confession of faith definition of unconditional election. I made it shorter, more concise, and I think this is a, what we're going to be using from now on, even in the confession of faith as we update that. Now, today we're going to be talking about the attributes of God. What is an attribute? An attribute is a, especially when we're talking about people, an attribute of a person. It is a quality or character or a characteristic ascribed to someone used for identification. And there are some synonyms that kind of surround the edges of that definition that I, th I think are helpful, especially in uh, this message and dealing with the involvement of the Lord Jesus Christ in his part in election. Some synonyms that are connected to the word attribute are feature, fingerprint, mark, note, trait, indication, sign, emblem, or symbol. Now, when we say that, and I, I kind of cheated a little bit, I talked about, I wanted to bring those up because of Christ. When I used some of those words, like sign, emblem, symbol, does that remind anybody of anything of what we looked at? Some of you were here, and even if you weren't, if you know what's talked about in John 1, 1 through 3, about Christ being the word these synonyms have to do with communicating some of these things. We know that Christ is the word of God. He is the logos. Some uh, have translated that word to be logic. We're going to look at some texts that show the connection between Christ's attributes and the Father's attributes. The idea here is that Christ communicates the Father to people. Christ is a mediator. He is the prophet. He's the one between God and man. If we are to know anything about the Father, we have to hear it by the Word, who is Christ, the living Word. And, of course, we've been left the written testimony, the written witness, the Scripture here for our, our benefit, our edification, our growth, our salvation. The means used in our salvation is the preached word or the gospel preached from the word of God. So Christ is that go-between. He is that logo. We've talked about 
we talked about this a lot when we looked at uh, John chapter 1 about Christ. When you look at Christ, what do you say? You see me, you see the Father, right? A logo is a quick reference shortcut to get concise about what what is represented, right? The reason logos are used in advertising is because they're effective. They work. The reason Christ is used in salvation as the logos of God is because God is wise enough to know this is the effective way. He's the qualified one. He can communicate. How many times have you seen me up here battling, struggling, and fighting this idea of mysticism? False religion is ate up with mysticism. Christ comes through and cuts. he cuts all that away by what he says, by who he is, by what he's done, and how that it's recorded, and how the warnings in Scripture, not just him, but the apostles who were taught by him, and thankfully even after that, in church history, those that have God has given grace to point these things out and warn about these things of shrouding the truth with mystery and ignorance and vagueness and compromise. Christ cuts Christ is the antithesis of that. He is the clarity of who God is. He is God, we know. He's the eternal Son of God. He came in the flesh. And when he came into the world, he spoke the truth. He had a ministry. He was clear. He was logical. He was rational. He exposed lies as he preached the truth. So we'll, we'll see more of that as we go along. We mentioned that unconditional election is Christ-centered. That, that flows right into that point. And it's Christ-centered not only because all of salvation is conditioned on Christ, and election is conditioned on Christ. You, you should have seen in the text already. It talks about how that we are chosen in Christ. The manner in which we were chosen is by and through Christ, conditioned on him because of him for his sake. So it's all about spotlighted on him to make our salvation unconditional. And we know that the Father has wisely chosen to set Christ forth in preeminence in all things. So much so we get, we're convinced of it. We got on the wall. It's one of our favorite verses, one of mine. That in all things he might have preeminence, Colossians 1.18. He's got it in creation. He's got it in judgment. He's got it in providence. He's got it in salvation overall. The government of the work of salvation was on his shoulders. It all depended on him. And then primarily this aspect of salvation, uh, this election of grace, lo and behold, it's not just something that's just this little toy doctrine we can just look at and say, that's pretty cool, and just throw it on the theological shelf and forget about it. Election is in Christ. Seems to be a pattern developing here, doesn't there? It's all about Christ. But... <laughs> I remember when I was unconverted and I toyed with this doctrine, I didn't, I didn't see any connection with Christ. I just bulldozed people over about the sovereignty of God just to get them angry. It doesn't take much to get people angry about the sovereignty of God, no matter how easy you loft it in there. <laughs> with a smile and patience and love and compassion, they're still going to get mad. But um, a person can take that thing and whip it around with it like a big giant sword of pride and haughtiness and do it as a know-it-all and um, I was pretty good at that I remember some of it so I counted all that as loss 
said I may find this Christ who is the center of election. Now I see him that way. The center of the gospel. So we'll look at some of that here. But here is just another aspect. This, this idea of attributes where Christ is brought in to communicate the Father and himself concerning the attributes of God. Now look at uh, again Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1 to bring this point up and stress it. This kind of goes to that idea about doctrine and theology. People think those two words are, are cuss words, basically, in churches. But they're God's words. He uses theology and doctrine. Without theology and doctrine, we would not be saved. That's a fact. Anybody want to dispute that is ignorant. God who at many times, Hebrews 1.1, and in many ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Old Testament. In these last days has spoken to us, the writer of Hebrews writing to believers, spoken to us by his son, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he had appointed heir of all things, Christ is appointed heir of all things, by whom... He, Christ, made the worlds. Christ, in the form of the eternal Son of God, in spirit form, before he took on flesh, way back, however many years ago that was, go back generations, created the world by himself. He was appointed to be the one to create. And he did it by speaking it, because he's the word. Let there be light. Let there, He said, let there be all this stuff. And he created it. By the power of his own spoken word. You can see that in John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, and some other places. Those are the ones I have memorized. So, verse 3. And speaking of this Christ, who being... I'm, I'm reading from the modern King James here. It may say something different in the other versions who being the shining splendor of his glory. Christ is the shining splendor of the glory of the Father. And the express image, here it is, the express image of his essence. This has to do with character attributes, right here. This is talking about, just like, and we don't have to turn there, just like in Philippians chapter 2, where he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and it talks about how that he temporarily emptied himself of his reputation to not show necessarily all of his character attributes in full-blown, open to the public splendor. Because, as we will see later in the series, how that God sometimes hides himself from some people. In other words, to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Philippians text comes to mind, you, you couldn't look at him and say, that's God by visually with your sensory perception, with your five senses. You couldn't look at him and deal with him and even hang around him and be convinced by what you see that this was God in the flesh. He emptied himself of his reputation, which is showing his own humility as he condescended down from the throne of God because he was the eternal son of God forever, you know, eternity past. And he came to communicate concerning the will of the Father, who the Father is, who he was, 
and to get the word to his sheep and to fulfill, of course, all the prophecy about him to fulfill the law, to obey the law, to keep the law, magnify the law, satisfy the law, and pay for the sins of his people to satisfy law and justice for them, and then to die, ascend, and be exalted at the right hand of the Father, where he's at now, running it all, right? And no matter what time you're talking about, in eternity, eternity past, in time, and after time's over with, this one, Christ, is the express image of his person or his essence. In other words, they display the same character attributes. They're co-equal, co-eternal, on and on and on. Now, let me say this before I forget. Now, as we go through some of these, we'll see how that, because of he set aside his reputation for a time and submitted in humility to do this work on earth and actually died, you'll see some things that's going on with him that, that may seem kind of confusing. Like, you'll, you'll think it's a weakness. We don't need to think that because it won't take long to look in the scripture and see it's a temporary putting off of his reputation. And we know sometimes in the Old Testament how God dealt with people, sometimes immediately and just get nuts on people judgment wise, you know. And we know how we we know how we would do. I've said it myself and I've heard other people say it about how that and we do this because of our natural human instincts of vindication of ourselves, which is why God has to put in place a command. I will repay. Don't don't take vengeance. I'll deal with it. Right. That's in place because God knows how that we are. We know that if somebody said something against us, we would strike them down. If we were if we were God, quote unquote, we would strike them down in such an extreme way and make a public show of it because we're number one right in our own mind we're number one we we are what matters and we are jealous of somebody else getting something over on us well god in his uh his purpose his wisdom his plan his patience and different things like this has has laid all this out to show us that we are not like him and he has to give us a new mind to conform our thoughts to his thoughts and we have to be renewed in our minds and see, okay, I'm impressed with this God's character attributes. And the more that we see his attributes churning over and over and over again in the scripture and being repeated and we see them tying together, it brings out worship in us. We see the, the awesomeness and magnificence of this God. Look what it says in the middle of that sentence, verse 3, it goes on. It says, uh, who being in the shining splendor of his glory and the express image of his essence, and upholding all things, talking about his providence, by the word of his power. The same word that he created the world with is the same word that he upholds and runs the world with. There's another testimony to this shortly after the same one that talks about some of the same things here in Colossians 1. It says, all things were created by him and for him, and without him... Nothing consists or sticks together. It's a sovereign cohesion where he keeps things held together. And if he decides to release them sovereignly, he, they'll be released. 
So whether it be a volcano, whether it be a tornado, whether it be a tsunami, whether it be a birth or a wounding or a healing or a death, a job loss, a marriage, all, he controls it all. He upholds all things by the word of his power for his purpose. And notice this. This is the, the best part. Through himself cleansing our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's where he is. He sat down exalted higher than any other place that ever can be held now and forever. So this is the, this is the one whom we have to do with, this God, who is expressed by the Lord Jesus Christ who is the word of God and the mediator that expresses that to us. Of course, the power of the spirit must give us a mind and so that we can absorb the truth about it and not reject it as our natural flesh wants to do, reject the truth. So we're going to see some overlap and some combinations of these attributes as we connect the attributes of God and election. I had mentioned before about uh, multitasking. We need to be able to think about more than one thing at a time when we deal with the scripture. As the scripture says, talking about line upon line, precept upon precept, as we gain truth and knowledge from the scripture, we need to bring it in. And everything, of course, funnels and filters through the gospel foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We use all the scriptural interpretation rules, and we, as we add to our learning, we don't divorce everything from one another. All these ideas are not opposing to one another. They, they must be harmonious. They must be able to be seen, layered upon each other. And the better that you can do this, and it, all it takes is study, the more that it will affect you. I believe the more it will affect everything about you're gaining and you're growing concerning the knowledge of who he is. You see how that things are connected. We talked about putting a puzzle together, how that we don't want puzzle pieces not to fit. And I know for me, I just talked about how I'm a freak about order. When things don't fit, I, I, I got to make, you know, I got to make sure that they fit right. Not that I'm trying to cheat and make them fit. We ought to be honest enough with ourselves to say, all right, I'm not afraid. I, I, my, my goal is the truth. I'm not afraid to challenge myself concerning outside thoughts. An example, some things in the past I had not really thought of, nothing to do with this message. But there were two or three things this week that other people brought to my attention that certain people were saying. I hadn't really... You know, I just kind of gave just kind of a cursory study before, but things were brought in. It's like, man, I got to think about this because if this can be wrong on this, this might affect this other. And the more you learn and grow, you see all the connectors in there. And this is important, especially spiritual things, but really everything in life is like that, right? So you're going to see some overlap. And again, it's not going to be exhaustive. I'm going to talk just a second about a few of these separate attributes. And I lost all my proof text for everything. I don't have the Bible memorized. And I might take a little time to search for some of these scriptures and look them up as you guys are looking them up too anyway. But the first one we want to see 
And again, I'm not just doing a, a thing over all the attributes of God. I'm trying to bring the ones out that seem to be more connected to the doctrine of unconditional election. I want to talk about the, the solitariness of God. Now, last week we kind of alluded to this when we talked about in the introduction that, that God didn't need anything from anybody. He's self-sufficient. He's independent. He, he's lacking nothing. We talked about this in worship. We talked about how that God is not served by in reference to temples made with hands or the works of our hands as if he needed anything, the text said. He doesn't need anything. When we think about a lot of things in general, we think about them in connection with us, right? Because that's where we live. We live with us. We live in our own head. So when we think of things, we, we kind of like are limited in this tunnel vision to ourselves. Well, if you read enough of the scripture, you can see that God is dealt with in reference to himself outside of us before us, before anything. I remember some guy at work years ago, I spent a lot of time with him, so we had time to talk about a lot of different things. And he was older than me too. And he, I was just talking about the scripture in general and just talk, I was talking about some of the attributes of God. And um, it's not hard today in America to like, just for lack of a better phrase, just blow somebody's mind with a scriptural idea. Some of the stuff that we're comfortable with talking about all the time, you tell somebody that has either been raised in false religion or hasn't gone to church in 30 or 40 years, you just give one statement. It's just like they kind of can't get over it. And then they want more, and which is good. But we were talking about, uh, I told him, I said, have you ever think about God before he created anything, before he created the world, before he created angels, and there was nothing? I said, what did that sound like? For one thing, there were some guys picking on him. There's a lot of goofy stuff that goes on in shops, you know. And I said um, something like, instead of responding in a vindicative, childish way, just give them, just ignore them. Give them total silence. So I brought that into this idea. I said, you just think before the, everything was created, there was nothing there. There was no light. There wasn't even darkness. The scripture says that God created darkness. So you do what you want with what's left. No darkness, no light. I don't know if it, that means it was clear. I have no idea. But I know this. There wasn't any sound. Total deafening silence. I've been in at work, been in different sound chambers and different things. We've used uh, sound insulation. And you get up next to it and you put your ear right against it. And it's like something like gets sucked out of your brain. It's weird. It's, it's, um, it's a weird feeling. But we never, we don't think past ourselves, past the end of our noses about what was going on and what God does. And the point is, God is in need of nothing. He had an eternal purpose going backwards. It, uh, as some theologians and preachers would call it, old eternity or eternity past. That just simply means what was going on before time began. God was fine. He was fine within the Trinity. <laughs> There are certain attributes, and we can get into some more of these later, there are certain attributes of God that are automatic within the Godhead, and there are some that are communicated outward to people. We can look at that later. But 
God was satisfied within himself, but he had this eternal purpose. He didn't just say, hey, got an idea. I had kind of sarcastically said it, I don't know when back, but it's like God didn't, Trinity didn't get in a huddle and say, hey, let's come up with this plan. God, with his eternal mind, we're going to talk about eternity here in a minute, he always had this plan. It's not new. And we can hardly deal with that because everything that we have is like things that are like cascading events. They're new because we're creatures of time. We can start to get a grip on eternity if we read about eternity. That's what Christ is there to do, to help us, is him being the word through the power of the spirit, look and see what eternity is. And the more you deal with eternity, you pick it up in the scripture and you bring it into your mind and, and you, you study about it, it's going to get a little bit more familiar. And you're not going to be saying, oh, I give up, I can't deal with this, this is eternal and I'm finite, forget it, you know. We can't do that. We gotta we gotta get in the scripture and study. God said, "Ask for wisdom; He'll give it liberally." The scripture talks about the Spirit of God indwells us. The means of the Word of God is here. We've got prayer. We've got fellowship. We can learn about all these things by the grace of God. So He's in need of nothing. He purposed this purpose concerning election within Himself. He purposed that within himself. Go look at the text again. Let's back up and look at what the text said in... Let's go back. We stopped at verse 6. So let's read the rest of this here. Uh, in 7, let's go to 7 through 12. In him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We're going to see attributes as we go down through here. Grace is one, which he caused to abound toward us in all wisdom and understanding. I like those two words. Having made known. Huh? Did you hear it? Having made known. What? The mystery. That means it's not a mystery anymore. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. Of his will, right? His will. According, here we go, here, here's what I brought us here. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. The independency, solidarity. It's, it's about him, his decision, his purpose, his will, his decree, his counsel. He's in charge. He can do it. He's wise. He's knowledgeable. He, all these attributes are going to go. It's keep your hands out of it. Just learn about it. Verse 10, for an administration of the fullness of times. And look at this. To head up all things in Christ. He's saying... It's all brought down to this in the fullness of the times to do this thing right here, to head up all things in Christ. Uh, I've been talking about this for a while. Uh, you, some of you may have already known this text. This is just one text of many that pretty much says the same thing, that it's all about Christ, all preeminence is in him. Right here it is. He's talking about this in the middle of all this stuff that we're doing a series on, predestination election. He's heading it up in Christ. 
Later on, the bottom of that chapter, the last few verses, talks about he's the head of the church, right? That's the section where it talks about where he's been raised up as high as he can ever be raised and ever will be raised. Head up all things in Christ, both the things in heaven and things in earth, even in him. So they're kind of redundant there. So you can, in case you didn't hear what I'm saying, in him. Verse 11, in whom, in Christ, we have been chosen. That's what it said in verse 4, right? Chosen in Christ. All these spiritual blessings, verse 3, are in Christ, in the heavens, in Christ. Been chosen to an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him. What about him? Which, what's the distinction here? The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. In case anybody is wondering who we're talking about, the distinction is right there and it's loaded with character attributes. And this God here that they're talking about is the one that we worship and the people that we talk to out there in the world, especially religious world, they, have no, they, they either have no idea of this God or they have heard of him and they resist and reject him. This point right here goes back to that factual statement that I brought up in the introduction that all people that have been saved have been chosen by God to be saved. That's what this verse says, but with a lot more depth in it. And just a reiteration of who's in charge and how that he did it with these character attributes being involved. And what's the result? Verse 12, for us, talking about believers, these are the believers that he's writing to in Ephesus, for us to be the praise of his glory. That's, that's what it's all about. That's why all things are to be headed up in Christ so that it can be to his glory who previously trusted in Christ. So I brought us there to, to see that point that it's according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. He alone is all these things. He's worthy. He's wise. He's knowledgeable. And the one who is able to do all these things right, be faithful to his own character, and not to contradict his character, and do it in such a way that he can be both a just God and a Savior. And any objection to this truth of what we're teaching there are answers. The word of God expresses clear-cut answers that are reasonable, biblically logical, that can defeat any rejection of a man-centered type election. And, and we're going to look at some as we go through here and expose them along the way. But the word of God is, uh, is there and we should be ready to give an answer. So he alone possesses all these things to do this. This is he's solitary. Our thoughts are not his thoughts unless and until he brings us into that so we can see what he's thinking by giving us the mind of Christ, giving us the spirit of God to see his revealed truth from the scripture. That's the idea of I once was blind, but now I see. I heard a guy on the radio this week talking about he was, he claimed to be a sovereign grace guy too. And uh, I'll give you a hint. There's not many Sovereign Grace guys on the radio in our area. 
But anyway, he was talking about theology. And um, this guy doesn't really talk that way that much. But he was kind of like posing one of his congregations saying, I can't get in all that theology. That theology, that's over my head. Theology just simply means the, the teaching of God, the study of God. And doctrine is the teaching of what's in the scripture. So the study of God, that study of God's over my head. Well, the natural man can't receive anything of the spirit of God. Of course, everything is over their head and they're spiritually blind and they're spiritually deaf. They can't hear. He that hath an ear, let him hear. That means there's people that don't have an ear until they're given one so they can hear. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. It's talking about spiritually. So, yeah, I, I can't understand all that theology. The, the preacher posed as the congregation member. He said, well, all you need to do is know that I once was blind, but now I see. Well, what's that mean? What's that mean? And, and when you start to explain what it means, what comes out? Doctrine and theology, the word of God. So we have to be, no doubt, be made to see all the things of the scripture, anything to do with God. And all truth comes from the scripture about who God is. God speaks for himself. And then he teaches us. And then we speak the same words about him, right? We confess Christ. We say the same word. So we could, uh, I, I had a bunch of verses written down here on this solitariness of God. We'll, uh, we'll pick those up as we go through the series. What about the eternality? You kind of talked a little bit about that. The eternality of God, the fact that he's eternal. Well, the text itself told when his people were chosen. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, so there is a fact that God, the initial statement, anybody that is saved was chosen to be saved by God to be saved. That's a fact. So we go to when did this happen? Uh, there's more than one verse that says it's before the foundation of the world. There's a few. There's a few. And uh, what in Romans 9 says before the children were born? That's one idea. But we know that means it was before the foundation of the world. So if one doing the choosing does it before the foundation of the world, this means he was before the foundation of the world. And we just read concerning Christ. We were chosen in Christ. So we know that Christ created the world. Father did the choosing in and by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is an eternal God. Several verses testify to his eternality. He was before all things, and by him all things consist. All right, I'm going to try to remember where these were. Let's go to 1 Timothy 1.9. Some of these I might take two or three stabs on figuring out where that's at. 2 Timothy 1.9. All right, this is it. Look at verse 8, 2 Timothy 1.8. Therefore, and we're dealing with the eternality of, of God. Therefore, you should not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me as his prisoner, but be partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who saved us, God saved us, and called us 
with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But as now it's been manifested or made known by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has made death of no effect, bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this purpose of God was purposed and given us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Another testimony of the eternality of God and his purpose. Look at Titus. I'm wanting to say it's one, two. Yeah. Titus, verse one. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's what? Elect. There's one of our words we're looking at. This is used as a noun. This is talking about a people, a group of people. According to the faith of God's elect, in the acknowledging of the truth, which is according to godliness. In hope, what's word hope mean? Confident expectation. In hope of eternal life, which God, notice this, who cannot lie. God doesn't have the free will to lie. Got it? God does not have the free will to lie. Don't forget it. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. He promised it within the Trinity. There was a covenant that was made. And we're going to talk about that as time goes on in this series. There wasn't anybody else back there to promise it to. We weren't back there. The purpose was there and it concerned us in Christ before the world began, which proves God is eternal and his purpose is eternal. Turn to go back to 1 Timothy 1. There's a verse I want us to see there. This kind of takes in a few attributes altogether. 1 Timothy 1, 17. We're going to just brush over the rest of these. We're going to, I promise, we're gonna, we have to deal with more attributes as we go through the series. I just want to just show a general overview of some of the attributes involved in unconditional election. Here, I want us to see just briefly the knowledge of God and his wisdom and have those combined here in this point. Verse 17, 1 Timothy 1, 17. Now to the king, capital K, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, that point earlier, and I, and I had a lot of verses in the God being by himself and for himself and self-sufficient. Verses that would use the word only and alone referring to God. We've quoted several times Old Testament passages, especially where it says, I am God and there's none else. I am God, and there's none like me. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, right? It's my favorite. Declaring the end from the beginning. I purposed it, I'll do it, my counsel shall stand, I'll do all my pleasure. But when he says, I'm God and there's none else, there's that exclusiveness. And then when we when we hear Christ talk that way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he's ruling every every other 
supposed choice out as another way to get there. He is the shepherd of the sheep. And as he watches the sheep and brings them together in the fold, it says in John 10, there are some that, that instead of coming through the door where I am, they creep in another way. They come over the fence or under the fence or something. These are thieves and robbers. Those that are preaching another Christ or adding conditions to salvation, false gospels, that, that's what they're going up against. They're going up against the only exclusive, solitary, singular way, the simplicity that is in Christ, the singularity, Christ alone, in other words, is not Christ plus, it's not Christ minus. It's who Christ is, what he said about himself concerning what he has done to reconcile us to the Father. He only, he's the only wise God. I'm going to quote some of these others without having you turn to them. I'll give you the reference. Colossians 2, 3. I think we just looked at this the other day. Speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Period. That's an absolute statement. That describes him as the living word of God. That is the eternal living word of God. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, there, there are a lot of self-professed geniuses out there. I was watching a cartoon the other day when the kids were watching. and What's that monkey thing back? Curious George. And um, this, the dude that's his handler was trying to uh, figure something out. And this scientist was helping him. I don't remember what the fix was. But he said, you're a genius. And we, she said, of course. You know what I mean? And you know people like that. about They think they're geniuses about certain subjects. And there's some smart people out there. They know nothing of this. But what I'm getting at is those that don't take heed where they stand lest they fall. You know, those that are proud and boastful and think they do know things and who are rejectors of Christ. And they're the rejecting the very thing that is everything. <laughs> right? They can't help it, really. I mean, it's... They're dead. Coming up, we'll be looking at, we're going to do a separate message probably on the foreknowledge of God, what that means, what it means and what it doesn't. We'll talk, of course, about the sovereignty of God. The foreknowledge of God, I had a verse earlier. I remember I had the, uh, the, the popular one, Romans 8, 30 and 31, whom he did foreknow, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. We'll look at that and we'll we'll look at some other some other verses for new, for no, for known, all those words and, and connecting words related to that. We'll look at false ideas about uh, the Armenian view of God looking down through the future and reacting to making salvation conditional on what God sees and learns from and destroys his other attributes of immutability and so on. The sovereignty of God, of course it, that is the main, seemingly the, the spotlight attribute of unconditional election. It's the sovereignty of God. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. How that everything without exception 
is under the control and absolute sovereignty of God. Everything. People say, you mean, yep, I mean, that's what I mean. You mean that, yep, all of it. They'll try to think of the word, yes, yes. Stop. Everything. He controls it all. Creation, providence, salvation. That seems to put everything in the three heads. And under salvation, controlling destinies, even under that umbrella, we know those that he has not chosen, he has not chosen them on purpose. And we'll deal with that. What people think is negative about the absolute sovereignty of God and the non-elect, we'll deal with that um, toward the end. Immutability, which means the unchangeability of God. He does not change. What verses come to mind? Jesus Christ, yesterday, today, and forever. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He, is, he doesn't change. To the other verse, ye sons of Jacob, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, the sons of Jacob are not consumed. Right? Are, are we in that? Do we worship the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac? Are we, are we of the seed of Abraham? Are we in that group? That we are not consumed because he doesn't change. He has made, we just read it in Titus, promise before time. The God that cannot lie promised eternal life before time. That promise is the promise of salvation conditioned on Christ alone. He brought us into that covenant by his sovereign choice and included us in. And Christ is our representative and he does the work. So we're not consumed. He doesn't change his mind about it. He doesn't say, well, you know, on second thought, I'm going to make this thing conditional. Things too easy for these people. And I'm hearing them Armenians. They're saying it's not fair, so I'm going to change it. Well, he's wise enough to know that if he changed it, everybody would go to hell. Right? God knows that if salvation was conditional, who would make it? Zero. Nobody. So we're going to talk about immutability. There's no variableness in him or shadow of turning. James 117 speaking of every good gift comes down from the father of lights we'll talk about the power of god that's an easy one i mean think even like little kids get it. that's maybe the first grip they get on or, or maybe told of of concerning god that he's powerful they can get a grip on cartoon characters how they're powerful santa claus right Knows when you've been sleeping, knows when you've been awake. All those attributes come out in the goofy Santa Claus ideas. And you've got these other Marvel characters. We need to infuse kids and grandkids' heads and adult people to act like kids. Give him, give them the information concerning the attributes of God, his power, his faithfulness. He's faithful to his own character. He's faithful to his promises. I'm going to wind it down right now. Time. The goodness of God, right? The goodness of God. He's good to his people. The goodness of God leads to repentance, right? Romans 2. We're going to talk about and dismiss this myth of common grace in connection with goodness. Speaking of grace, that's the next one to mention. The grace of God. That's a character and attribute. The this series talks about the election of grace, right? It's not the election of works. It's not conditioned on anything we are or do. So we're going to, the, these next 
two, you, you can't really, it's the last two, you can't really uh, think about them. I don't think, apart from grace, you got grace, mercy, and love. These things seem to always go together. So as you start to think about these and you combine them together, the grace of God, of course, is sovereign grace. The sovereign God is in charge of it, so he gives it to whom he pleases. This grace is an immutable grace. It doesn't change because it's not conditioned on you. It's unmerited favor. This grace is, since it was purposed in God, is in the eternal God, it's eternal, unchanging, sovereign grace. See, as you go along and you, you throw the extra attributes, it's like you see the strength of these things combined. The love of God, you know, you think about uh, the common view that says that God loves everybody without exception that has ever been born. And then in the end, he throws most of those people in hell. What problems do you start seeing with other attributes there? He changed, right? He changed. Um, maybe he tried, they say, he tries to save them, but look where they went. What's that say about his power, right? He's weak. Um, what else? Faithfulness. He, he made these promises. And his justice. Justice is, looks this way in the universal atonement. God loves everybody and Christ died for everybody. Therefore, okay, the sin debt of everybody in the whole world is put on Christ. Christ pays that sin debt. There they go. The majority of those people go to hell. First of all, they got ripped off because Christ paid sin debt. That's what she said. Christ got ripped off. He paid that sin debt and took all that punishment. For what? It's starting to look bad, right? It's a, it's a bunch of lies. It's, this is easy to see. Some guy wrote me this week, and I say the same thing to everybody that writes me, people that I'm kind of like suspicious of anyway, that write me on Facebook. I just ask questions up front. Do you believe that God loved everybody, Christ died for everybody, and God wants to save everybody? Yes, brother. Okay, and then I, I try to give them information to... For, and a lot of times I say, first, do you, are, you, are you into sovereign grace? Are you familiar with sovereign grace? Yes, brother. And then I ask that next question. They say, of course. So they agree and believe what the Armenian teaches. In my mind, what goes off in my mind? Sort of that noise right there. You know, it's just what I'm thinking when I'm on. Um, but I ask this question, and, and some of you, we've posed this, I think. You don't think about it much. What about those people that, that had already died before Christ came to die? From Adam... All the way up to the cross. All those people that died rejecting God in unbelief. You ask the Armenian, did, God, did Christ die for those people that died in unbelief before Christ died? They say yes. That is crazy. That is mind-numbing. I, I don't know what to call it. It's a lie, for one thing. But that, that's an easy way to start to poke holes in, in universal atonement, is bring that up. Some of them use that crazy thing where, well, when, when Christ died, he went down in this little uh, holding tank. 
And he preached to them and gave them a last chance to be saved after that. Some of you heard that. Goofy idea. Anyway, I'll stop there. Um, some of the things that I forgot, I'll bring them out in the other messages and we'll try to bring some attributes out uh, the best we can as we go along. Any questions or comments? Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, go ahead. So, if we're predestined by election, then does that give you an out of not having to do anything in your life? Okay. So, we're gonna, you see where I'm getting at? Yeah, we're going to deal with that quite quite a bit. So we can live however you want to. We're going to deal. Right, we're going to deal with that. There are there are different um, there are two terms at least that 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 idea expressed is called it's called fatalism or hyper Calvinism, and uh, what it what that wrong view does is it takes out the means from what God says will happen till the time that it does happen, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna cover a lot of that both in um, salvation and in the application of the believer's life. Like the other thing connected is, well, if everything without exception is predestinated, why pray, right? So we'll, we'll even bring that in. And um, those means are in place and those means that have to take place and we are told to do, those means are even predestinated by God. So there's always... And the work, that's what yeah, yeah. The, been right. Evangelism, missionaries, preaching, all that stuff is a means to call out God's sheep. And, of course, we don't do that separate from the Spirit. The Spirit of God is in there, and he's the power, but he uses those means to call out his people. Yeah, they're, toward the end, there's a lot on that to deal with. All right.